This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown, episode 1.26, Fire Broadside, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and just a decoy here to distract you. And I'm Nina, Gundam noob, and trying to watch everything in release order, so keep your NT spoilers away from me. <laughs> we have some new patrons to thank this week. Big thank yous go out to Zach S., Nathan B., Anthony L., and Lucas L., we so appreciate your support and look forward to chatting with you in the patron discord. Thank you to everybody who's reached out to us on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, and by email to let us know how much you're enjoying the podcast. Thank you all so much. We really appreciate the kind words of encouragement. One quick update on the prize giveaway. Mandeep S., <laughs> who follows us on Facebook, you won a prize. Uh, but it turns out Facebook won't let a page message someone who hasn't messaged them first, which I'm thankful for because it probably prevents a lot of <laughs> spam. But it means, Mandeep, that we cannot message you. You have to message us. <laughs> so if you would like your amazing prize pack, Mandeep, please message us. We will give it until the end of the day, Saturday, March 2nd, for you to get in touch with us. Otherwise, your prize will go to another person. Last week, the White Base at last arrived in the Federation's hidden Amazonian headquarters, Jaburo, where the crew enjoyed a brief break from constant action. Too brief, Fashar Aznable's Xeon forces tracked them to Jaburo and launched a series of commando raids that were only thwarted through the concerted efforts of the White Base's defenders and the tiny heroics of Kika, Katz, and Letts. With Jaburo secure once more, the White Base was ordered back into space, this time as a decoy to draw Xeon attention. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Gundam episodes 31, A Decoy in Space, or Zanjibaru Tsuigeki, The Zanzibar in Pursuit, and episode 32, Breakthrough, Kyoko Topa Saksen, The Forceful Breakthrough Operation. This week, we researched Itano Ichiro, a member of the Gundam team who went on to become famous in the anime community, the design influence of the Zacrello, and why do pilots pass out from sufficient Gs? How realistic is the scene where Amaro blacks out while fighting the big row? But first, the recap. In their final meeting with the Jaburo generals, Bright and Mirai receive instructions for their decoy mission. The White Base will leave two hours ahead of the main force, taking the opposite route to eventually rendezvous at Zeon's space fortress, Solomon. The generals are confident that Solomon will fall, and that Zeon will then be forced to sue for peace. During this meeting, one of the generals, who knew Mirai's father, jokes that she must let him find her a husband once the war is done. She seems uncomfortable, and he apologizes, as he remembers she already has a fiancé. This is news to Bright, and Mirai tries to explain that it was an engagement arranged by their families, but they are both out of sorts as they arrive back at the White Base to prepare for departure. A new lieutenant, Slegger Law, has been assigned to the White Base. He is older than anyone else on the crew, and Bright only outranks him because he is the commander of the vessel. As the White Base leaves Jabro and Earth behind, they fly past a beautiful flock of flamingos, a brief moment of joy and peace before their battles begin again. 
Shar and Lieutenant Tukwan set out to follow them in a Zanzibar, taken from Kaecilia's Earth forces. They did not have permission, but would have lost the white base if they had waited. This Zanzibar also carries the Big Row, a state-of-the-art mobile armor, and two Rick Doms, Doms that have been modified for combat in space. The white base prepares for the incoming Xeon force. Sela, thinking out loud, says that Shar must be coming for them. When Bright asks how she knows, she says that fate connects Shar and the white base. The two massive ships come into firing range. The Zanzibar launches the Big Row and Rick Doms, while the White Base launches the G-Sky and G-Bull. Sela is preoccupied, thinking that she cannot let Shar waste his life getting vengeance on the Zabi family. Shockingly fast, the Big Row zips past Amuro and Sela, and on the second pass, its claws grab the G-Bull and throw it towards Earth. As the Zanzibar and the White Base exchange laser fire, Amuro and Sela continue to fight the Big Row and the Rick Doms, near enough to Earth that they risk getting pulled into freefall. Kai goes out to back them up in the gun cannon, giving Amuro time to transfer to the Gundam. Shar orders the Zanzibar to take a collision course with the White Base, and as the ships pass each other, they exchange broadsides, with Lieutenant Slegger managing a direct hit on the Zanzibar's engines. Sela worries that the pilot of the Big Row might be Shar, and hesitates to fire multiple times because of it, but manages to destroy one of the Doms. Amuro in the Gundam grabs hold of the Big Row, but its acceleration causes him to pass out. The Big Row's claws grab hold of the Gundam, holding it in place in front of its Mega Particle Cannon, but Amuro wakes just in time to dodge out of the way and fire the Gundam's beam rifle right through the Big Row. The remaining Dom retreats, and Shar orders his crew to begin repairs. Amuro, Sela, and Kai return to the White Base, and the crew there take a brief rest, though they know they haven't seen the last of the Zanzibar. Just a short while later, it seems another mobile suit is approaching the White Base. Since it sustained the least damage in the last fight, Hayato is sent out in the gun tank. Amuro worries about sending Hayato alone, and decides to go along in the Gundam. Hayato reaches the enemy, a new mobile armor called Zakrello, and piloted by Dimitri, one of Taquan's men who wants revenge on the White Base. Shar is angry that the mobile armor was launched against his orders, and warns Mulligan that if this happens again, he'll be court-martialed. Against the speed and agility of the Zakrello, Hayato is outmatched, but Amuro arrives and defeats it, though not without the Gundam taking serious damage. Repairs continue on the White Base and the Zanzibar, and Shar calls Dren of the nearby Camel Squadron to intercept the Federation ship and keep them pinned down until Shar's Zanzibar can catch up. When the White Base becomes aware of Camel Squadron and its Musai, Bright decides that the best course is to punch through the line. The squadron approaches at full speed, supported by Rick Doms. Dren, who had been on Shar's Musai during and immediately after the attack on Side 7, feels that he too has a fateful attraction to the White Base. For the first time, Lieutenant Slayer takes a G-Sky and joins Kai and Hayato in the battle. Sela, who slept only fitfully and dreamed of Shar, is also sent out, even though Amuro is worried about her and thinks she has been acting strangely. Slayer, eager to prove himself as a pilot, wastes ammo by firing too soon. Two hours have passed since the White Base left Earth, and the main Federation force is leaving Earth's atmosphere now, taking a direct route to Luna 2. While the White Base focuses fire on the engines of one Musai, their mobile suits and jets try to take out the Rickdoms. The White Base destroys one Musai while Amuro, in the finally repaired Gundam, takes out another. He slices through the bridge of Dren's ship, causing Dren and several of his officers to be sucked into the vacuum of space. After a duel with one remaining Dom, a well-aimed toss of the beam javelin destroys the last Musai. The White Base, limping along and unable to withstand any more combat, decides to head for the neutral territory of Side 6. While there is a chance they will be surrounded, they need somewhere safe to conduct repairs, and Side 6 is the nearest and best option. Mirai sets the course, thinking about the irony that they are now headed straight for the last known location of her fiancé.
Today we are doing our talkback for a decoy in space and breakthrough. Which I believe are episodes 31 and 32. We do have to open this episode with an apology <laughs> though, because we messed up a little bit last week. Oops. When we're making the podcast, we're usually about an episode or two ahead of the podcast in our own watch through of the show. And last week we got confused a little bit. We talked about a scene where it is revealed that Mirai has a fiance. And if you're watching along with the podcast, you were probably pretty confused about that because that scene doesn't actually happen in those episodes. It happens in a decoy in space. Yep. It happens in the first two minutes <laughs> of a decoy in space. Uh, we got confused probably because it happens in Jaburo and only the first like five minutes of a decoy in space happen in Jaburo. We apologize. I felt like all the scenes with Mirai and Bright and the generals kind of all mush together. Yeah. It doesn't help that I think they're using the same animation for a oh, lot of those. I'm sure they're using exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> to recap, it's a really wonderful scene between Mirai and Bright. Bright is very expressive without saying very much. And as I pointed out in our last episode, it gives us what I think is subtle but undisputable confirmation that they are in an active relationship that they are both aware of. <laughs> this is not a situation of unrequited love or of flirtation. No, they are together because when they're talking about this after the revelation, Mirai says, oh, I'm going to need to do something about that. And Bright says, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, this is a situation you need to resolve. <laughs> and even just the fact that she feels compelled to explain herself and that, oh, it was arranged by our families. Uh, I don't have any feelings for this guy, <laughs> which if there weren't some kind of an understanding between Mirai and Bright, she wouldn't necessarily feel compelled to explain. And then it doesn't come up again throughout these two episodes, except at the very end when for reasons of tactical necessity, they decide to stop in at the neutral space colonies of side six, the same side where Mirai's fiance is currently hiding out from the war. And Bright even asked her, is that going to be a problem? She's like, no, not really. <laughs> but she does seem put out <laughs> by having to deal with it so soon. And then to herself, she says, Masaka, <laughs> which I think the show translates as, oh, who would have thought? And that's like, that's fine. Masaka means like something unexpected. Or one of the translations I saw was, well, I never. It's often used as a mild oath. Yeah. So it's a little like Mirai is saying, well, damn. <laughs> yeah. Now that we've addressed that, I want to open our proper discussion of this episode with a meta note, which is about the timing of the creation of this episode. We are now around episode 31 or 32 of a total 43 episode run. Japanese TV shows, especially anime, are usually produced in what are called cools or kurus that are 12 or 13 episode blocks that roughly correspond to the four seasons of a year. So there's a spring one, a summer one, a fall one, and a winter one. Gundam was originally slated to be a four kuru anime. It was cut down to a three kuru anime, which would have been 39 episodes. As we talked about way back in the beginning, according to the stories, the Gundam team fell down on their knees and begged for an extension and were given another month, which worked out to four more episodes and allowed them to finish at 43. But since the fourth kuru was canceled and we're now into the third, at this point, the team has probably been told that the show has been canceled. And in a couple of episodes, the storyline is going to start diverting from what it was originally planned to be. What I would expect, based on that information, is a sense of compression, a sense of trying to cram in all the necessary story in time to end the show, rather than to have it cut off sort of ignominiously before you can wrap it in any way. Mm -hmm. But we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. 
thematically, I felt that the first of these two episodes was all about assumptions. Everybody making assumptions and most of them very ill-founded. <laughs> uh, we start with the general who's speaking to Mirai and Bright saying, oh, well, we're going to take out this Zeon facility and then they will be so short of resources that, of course, they will sue for peace and the war will be over. He seems very confident <laughs> of this fact. <laughs> he seems very calm. But we know way back from the Battle of Odessa, uh, McVeigh comments, oh, you know, it doesn't matter that the mines are being destroyed. We extracted 10 years worth of material before this. Mm -hmm. So unless all that material is at the site that's going to be destroyed, uh, <laughs> I think that's some misplaced confidence. Well, we'll find out whether that confidence is misplaced or not. But there were other assumptions in this episode, too, that you pointed out. Yeah. Well, we also have uh, notably Char assuming, one, that Sayla would have quit being a soldier since he saw her last episode and that the crew of the White Base can't possibly be the same crew that he's fought previously, that a whole bunch of civilians, one, wouldn't have become soldiers in this way and two, couldn't possibly have improved so much in such a short span of time. Yeah, he speculates that the White Base must have a new captain, for instance. I was particularly surprised by his comments about Sela. Um, This is maybe very natural, but they haven't seen each other since they were children. Mm -hmm. And both of them are making assumptions about each other. Actually, no, strike that. <laughs> Char is making assumptions about Sela based off the person that she was as a little girl. And she's a young woman now who's been through a lot in the intervening years that he doesn't know anything about. Mm -hmm. Sela seems much quicker to come to grips with who Shar is now. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder whether the Kasval that she knew was perhaps not so very different from Shar. She has this moment. There's a scene where she's dreaming. Well, having a nightmare, really. And in the dream, we see Shar reaching out to her and saying to her, I can't forgive the zombies for what they've done. Don't get in my way. And it's unclear. It's not something we've heard him say to her in the series. It's not from the previous episode when I they run into so. each other? Okay. I think in the previous episode where they run into each other, he says, would you leave the army for me? Mm. I don't think he says anything about the zombies in that scene. But in that dream, it's not clear if this is something that Shar said to her sometime in the past. Well, that Kasval said to her sometime in the past before they were separated or if Shar is in some sense reaching out to her across <laughs> the void of space. I was going to say, or they're both espers. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> we see a neat transition between these two episodes of how Sela relates to the idea of Shar. Mm -hmm. Sela is definitely struggling with her emotions and her feelings about her brother in these episodes. But it's very stark, the transition from I'm terrified to shoot at any Xeon because it might be my brother mm -hmm. to my brother is a danger to us all and I need to be good enough to beat him. <laughs> and that happens over the course of a couple of hours. <laughs> but is it? But in that scene with Amuro where she says she wants to be able to beat Char, is that true? If there's one thing we know about Sela at this point, it's that she's very strong. But if there are two things we know about <laughs> Sela, it's that she is a liar. And so I can't trust any motivation that she expresses to another person. But then why else ask? What, what is the point of that conversation if she's not actually concerned with being good enough to fight him? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, so often people say that she's strong and we tend to think of that in physical terms. But we've also commented she seems emotionally kind of cold. And I think it's entirely plausible to say Sela has come to the conclusion that the way Shar is going about trying to 
to get vengeance is wrong. Mm -hmm. And that as much as she wouldn't want to kill him, she needs to be able to fight him because regardless of their personal connection and relationship, what he's doing is wrong. I don't know about wrong because she says when she's thinking about Char, if you're doing all of this just to get revenge on the Zabi clan, I can't stand to see you waste your life like that. Like the impulse is not that she needs to defeat him and stop him from what he's doing, but that she needs to save him from himself. But also that she needs to defeat Zeon. We know she feels quite passionately about fighting against Zeon. Mm-hmm. And it's not hard to imagine that, you know, while while she can understand that logistically <laughs> getting vengeance from the inside might be simpler, uh-huh. it still means using his talents, his strengths, his energy in support of the Zeon cause, which she finds utterly abhorrent Mm -hmm. so (laughs) yeah that's an excellent take on it we won't know more until later on i'm sure when we get a little more insight into (laughs) what's going on with those two we talked in the last episode about the loss of emotion that Shar has gone through mm-hmm. in the course of the series, how he seemed like a much more caring leader, much more emotionally invested in his men early on in those first few episodes before he went away for a while. Mm-hmm. And now that he's come back, I mean, his absolute disregard for the soldiers under his command has only increased over time. In the second episode in Breakthrough, when Dimitri has gone out in the... Uh, Zacrello. Yeah, the decommissioned mobile armor Zacrello and... And been shot down, what Char says is, oh, I couldn't care less about a weapon I didn't even know about. He doesn't even care enough about the pilot to acknowledge Dimitri's death. He only cares about the mobile armor and only enough to say that he doesn't care about it. And Dren, who he has fought alongside for a long time, we get the impression they've known each other probably for years. You know, Dren initially accidentally addresses him by his old rank. Mm-hmm. He shows basically no remorse for Dren's death. Yeah. Well, he says- his attitude is, what is he he says something like, wow, even Dren got bested yeah, by the white base. To think even Dren couldn't hold them off long enough for me to arrive. But did you notice his body language there? No. There's a, it's very brief, but before he says that, after Dren has been killed, he looks down and to the right and then looks back up straight ahead. Mm-hmm. And I noticed it because it's done, not the looking down, but the looking back up is done in that same choppy slow motion that was used for his creepy smile mm. in the previous episode. I think there was a brief flash of emotion there. Mm -hmm. That would make sense. But that's all he can muster for someone who seemed like a loyal subordinate and even perhaps a friend. So has Char's time in the army, has his time as a soldier, has his quest for vengeance changed him? Was he always like this or is this the result of his hate-filled quest to destroy the Zabi clan? Or his obsession with the Gundam consuming him. And obviously the latter two. At least from a story <laughs> from a storytelling perspective, how many times have they brought up the futility of vengeance and cycles of revenge? Mm-hmm. And then to add that the pursuit of vengeance is damaging to the person pursuing it, damaging to the persons involved, beyond just that some people are probably going to die. <laughs> right. Well, and that's um the second episode, Breakthrough gives us that in a very distinct way because we get Dimitri rushing off on a mission of revenge for his slain commander, Tokwan. And it's Dimitri, you know, runs off to his immediate demise, as the show has again and again done, shows us the, the futility and the cost of that search for revenge. On the other side of that rivalry, in the conversation between Sela and Amuro, Amuro begins describing Shar. And the voice acting is very striking to me because there is no fear there. There is only admiration. Animal lust. (laughs) No. 
That was not the vibe I got. <laughs> but everything about how he describes Shar on the battlefield and fighting Shar is full of admiration. Absolutely. We have heard at various points much more fear. Now that Amuro is better able to hold his own and has actually chased off Shar twice, is that fear being replaced <laughs> or, or at least tamped down? <laughs> Perhaps. I wonder if that's not the reason Sela leaves that conversation so abruptly. Because Sela comes to Amuro asking for advice on how to be a better pilot. And he does seem like he's kind of warming up to giving her some. But before he actually does, she she doesn't jet away, but she floats away. And I wonder if it's not because in that conversation, Amuro's like admiration for Shar comes through so clearly. And it's unsettling, that's, it's unsettling for Sela. And that's what makes her leave. And when she says, I wish I could be like you, she doesn't mean I wish I could be a better pilot like you. She means like, I wish I could admire him for his like skill and daring. There's one other conversation about Char, don't forget, uh, between her and Amuro and Slegger. Mm. When she is waiting in that one room, I don't know what exactly that room is for. <laughs> she wakes up from the nightmare that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Amuro and Slegger come in. Amuro's there to relieve her. It's unclear isn't it the, why Slegger is there. Isn't it the other there. way around? Oh, that she comes to relieve She comes Amuro. to relieve Amuro. And as Amuro is leaving, Slegger is like trying to hit on Sela. And Amuro keeps... Um, well, I'm reminding him he's supposed to be... <laughs> Aren't you supposed to be on the guns? We're in battle. But Char comes up in that conversation as well. And after Amuro and Slegger have both left, Sela is like, everything always comes back to my brother. <laughs> yeah. All these boys just want to talk about my brother. She just can't escape it, right? She hasn't been able to rest. She's exhausted because she's fretting about Char. Yeah. She's fretting about this connection between Char and the White Base. She's worried. She's not sure what she should do. She's consumed by it. And every time it looks like she might get to some peace, (laughs) she might get some time away from it, it comes up again. Yeah. Well, when she's on the bridge, she has this moment where she's sort of talking to herself and she says, Char is coming after us. And Brad is like, how can you, how do you know that? She sort of stutters and says, oh, there's this fate connection between Shar and the white base. And that has the feeling of one of Sela's lies, one of her convenient, implausible, unbelievable lies that she tells all the time. But it also kind of feels true. Yeah, I didn't think it felt like a lie at all. Just the way she like scrambles for the answer. Mm. She might not mean the white base. When she is thinking, she might be thinking about the two of them. Mm-hmm. That the two of them must have some sort of fated connection or how would their paths wind up crossing? crossing again, right? In this massive battle that's taking place across such a huge span of space (laughs) with so many people involved and so many people already dead from the war that the two of them should continually collide with each other feels fateful. Mm -hmm. So she might be thinking of herself, (laughs) but it also feels like there's a fateful connection between the white base and Char. And Dren brings it up again. He feels like he has a fateful connection to the white base Mm -hmm. before he gets killed. By Amaro. <laughs> Space is a big place, but people keep running into each other. I think these two episodes give us space battles that are both very naval feeling. Definitely. But also closer to what real space battles would be like if they were fought under the constraints of the Minovsky particle in terms of, especially in the first episode, where the actual engagement is very short. There's a bunch of skirmishing between the mobile suits initially, but then when the ships actually fight each other, since they're going at opposite directions and they're going at very, very high speeds, there's just a brief burst 
burst of fire where they're close enough range and then they're too far apart to fight again. Yeah, these battles to me felt very much like huge ships on the ocean fighting each other with support from aircraft and smaller ships. Mm -hmm. Well, especially in the second battle when it's the white base against Dren's uh, camel squadron. And while the white base and its uh, support mobile suits are engaged with the camel squadron's force of doms, Amuro in the Gundam is able to attack the Musai directly and they don't have any defenses against him. Yeah, another pretty horrifying battle scene. Most of this battle, we see big explosions and from far away, there's not a sense of loss of human life, but Amuro cuts open the bridge of Dren's Musai, uh, sucking basically everyone that's there out into the vacuum of space. Including Manuel. Including Manuel. Yeah, and that whole scene where Amuro destroys the two Musai is all shown to us from Dren's perspective, not Amuro's perspective. In fact, for a lot of it, Amuro is not visible at all because there's this whole portion of the scene where the Xeon officers are trying to figure out where the Gundam is. They Mm -hmm. can't see it. And then we have powerful beam weapons firing from off screen. Well, in a flash of light, the the movement of the Gundam is depicted almost like a shooting star. And so, you know, we see Dren, one of the cruisers in Dren's squadron get destroyed, but we see it from Dren's perspective as he's looking out the window. And then the Gundam is there and it's attacking his ship and it beam saber cuts through the bridge and it stops just inches away from Dren. But then he and everyone on board are sucked out through the the gap. It's quite horrifying. It's also fairly evident to me that from the writer's perspective, this is obviously a huge, (laughs) a series of huge set piece battles, but they never want it to become just excitement. They never want it to veer into fun action movie territory Mm -hmm. without reminding us these ships are full of people. Right. This is, you know, each one of these successful attacks that are saving our heroes are costing other human lives. Right. And so we don't have the... The scene of Amuro in the Gundam going, Yata, I did it. We have Dren and horror. Those are the emotions the show wants us to feel here. I think it wants us to feel both because I think it wants us to, like you have pointed out before, feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. We cheer for Kai when he succeeds yeah. and yells Yata. Uh, Kai, who has been trying to buck himself up, you know, saying, I can't be depressed forever. And right. who's been gaining a lot of confidence and skill. And manages to one shot a Dom. And frankly, we know the Federation has problems, but but it's pretty clear that the baddies are Xeon. Federation may be also baddies, but not as bad a baddies. <laughs> um, it's a nuanced take. I appreciate that. But the show never wants to let the audience become complacent in that feeling mm-hmm. of we're in the right, they're in the wrong, we want to win, and we're going to divorce ourselves from what that means. Because what that means in this context is killing a lot of other people. Yeah. I found myself wondering a bunch about the big row because when it first gets introduced, the thing they point out is how fast it is. It just zips past mm-hmm. Sela and Amaro. Yeah. I would think that if your greatest strength is your speed, you would use that to maintain distance from your enemy rather than grabbing them and holding them close to you, where the only benefit your speed provides is if you can do what they did when they grabbed Amaro and the Gundam and basically cause enough G-force on the 
object you're holding to make the pilot pass out. Yeah. Otherwise, why on earth would you, in this very fast machine, stay in that close range? Why wouldn't you be darting in and out or get maneuvering around behind them? It just feels like poor strategy to me. Mm-hmm. No, I agree with you. So the big row really looks a lot like a grab row, the aquatic mm-hmm. uh, mobile armor that we saw a couple of episodes back, but in space. Mm-hmm. And the grab row also had those arms. It also had the beak that opened up and there was a powerful beam cannon inside it. In the grab row, I think the problem was that the beam cannon underwater is not very effective. When we saw beam weapons being used underwater, they could still have some effect, but it was like a slow melting process over Mm -hmm. time rather than just punching right through the way they do in the atmosphere and in space. Mm -hmm. So for the grab row, I think the arms were necessary to hold the target in front of the cannon long enough for the cannon to do its business. In the case of the big row, it really feels like it's optimized for fighting ships, not mobile suits. Mm. Given its speed, Mm -hmm. given that it's only really equipped with those grabber arms, which aren't very good weapons, the one very powerful heavy particle cannon, mega particle cannon, whatever it is, and those missiles. So not really good for fighting mobile suits. I'm not even sure why they kept the arms. Maybe it was just simpler not to change the design too much. Maybe they just felt like the they needed some sort of close-in weapon system. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was being used the way it's supposed to be used. We see the Zacarello later, which had already been discarded for not being very useful. It's clear that Xeon mobile armor design has not yet settled on something particularly effective. The Zacarello is the goofiest looking thing. I'm going to call it now. It is the goofiest. It's real goofy. It's the most anthropomorphized of any of the weapons we've seen so far. Even the ones that are shaped like humans don't have that much of a face. (laughs) Um, Yeah, one of the fun things about the Zaccarello is you can't really pin down the production staff on who's responsible (laughs) for it. I'm I'm pretty sure Okawara designed it, but there's a lot of different theories about why, whether it was a like rough sketch that Tomino gave him. Did it come directly from the toy company? Was this an attempt to appease the toy company? Was it an attempt to make fun of the toy company. Was this like, we are going to make a design so ridiculous that they will definitely not approve it. And then the toy company looked at it and said, oh, that's great. Yeah, <laughs> do that. Um, I've, I've heard all of those explanations for the Zuccarello. It definitely felt to me like a good opportunity in the show to take someone's design and poke fun at it. When they say, oh, it was developed and then scrapped. Mm-hmm. They're talking about someone's design. Oh, somebody did this design and we scrapped it because it was too ridiculous. And it's going to make this one appearance and then be destroyed and never come back. But you know what? What? The Zacrello has a visual reference, which is not nearly so ridiculous as it sounds. What? And I think when you see it, you're actually going to appreciate the Zacrello's design a little bit more. <laughs> not that it's not ridiculous, but there's more to the Zacrello than you might assume just looking at its absolutely ridiculous design. Also, the name L's and R's are sort of interchangeable in Japanese. So it could be the Zacrero, which would put it in line with the grab row and the big row. Mm -hmm. in terms of having a row suffix. We did a little bit of digging earlier on that row, and we didn't find a compelling linguistic explanation for it. But Japanese uses suffixes like this quite often to denote certain classes of things. If you've studied Japanese, you're probably familiar with counters, which are used whenever you're counting items, and it's a different suffix for each different type of item you're counting. This use of suffixes is pretty normal in Japanese, and so this may have just been one that was invented for Gundam. You know, anything from this early Xeon mobile armor design line just has an RO suffix at the end. 
And even in the fight with the Zuccarello, Hayato continues to be useless. <laughs> he hasn't accomplished anything. In both of these fights, Hayato does nothing. Poor Hayato. Slager doesn't do much more, but at least he gets that one hit during the broadside section. Amuro and Hayato do have that nice interaction, though. Yeah. At the end of the first combat, I believe, when Amuro checks in with Hayato. How was it out there? Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that the old resentment has gone. Yeah. They may not like everything about each other, but they've been through a lot together. I did, however, notice that in the second episode, when Hayato gets sent out alone, Amuro is like, mm, I'm going to go too. <laughs> I don't entirely trust Hayato to take care of this. I don't know that Amuro would trust anyone alone, though. You're probably right. Do you notice that Dren got promoted? I did not notice. He started the series as an ensign, just like Bright, and now he's a lieutenant. Ah. Just like Bright. <laughs> oh, well, I guess now he's a dead lieutenant. Ugh. So he might outrank Bright. Do you think Xeon gives out two rank promotions to everybody who gets killed by the white base? I don't think Xeon gives out two rank promotions to everyone who gets killed by the white base. They'd be overflowing in generals. So dark. Not as dark as Kai's murder therapy. Maybe if I kill some more Zeons, I'll feel better. I can't be depressed forever. It seems to be working. I mean, it worked for Amaro. We would be remiss if we did not talk about the newest member of the White Base crew. What a piece of work. I mean, he's a total creep. Absolutely. <laughs> he's a total creep. And, you know, the, the show doesn't really play it for laughs. No. It's clear that Slager is being inappropriate and that everyone is just like putting up with him the required minimum amount because he outranks everyone there except Bright. Who he is the same rank as. So yeah. even in the interactions between him and Bright, this might not be as obvious in English, but in Japanese, it's very polite. It's much, basically Bright doesn't give Slager orders. Bright asks Slager to do things or suggests things that Slager might do yeah. that would be helpful. Which is a different dynamic. Totally. When it's why for Slager, it's not, it is insubordination. It is a power play for Slager to say, no, nah, I'm not going to go and man the gun turret until you turn the ship around. But it's not the same as if a lower ranked person did that. And Bright does pull rank on him. He reminds him, we're the same rank, but I am your commander. <laughs> we're the same rank and you're older than me, mm -hmm. but I'm your commander, which is an uncomfortable position for everyone involved. Yes. Although Slager doesn't seem discomfited by it at all. Yeah. He seems to enjoy being a troublemaker. That's the thing. The question with Slager is, is Slager here to represent what the rest of the Federation is like, what proper soldiers are like, or is Slager here because like everyone else on the white base, he is a nuisance and they wanted to get him out of the way? I think probably the second one. I think so too. Nobody else wanted him and the white base can't refuse. Yep. Additionally, they might have wanted to make life difficult for Bright. <laughs> no, but by giving, him, by giving him someone who he doesn't outrank. Yeah. You know, that feels very calculated to cause discord. His presence feels intrusive. Mm -hmm. We have this very tight knit group and suddenly someone new is introduced who doesn't fit. He does not mm -hmm. have the shared history mm -hmm. that they have. He's much older than most of them. Yeah. Um, where that was true for Ryu also, Ryu treated that in a sort of family oriented way. Ryu felt like everyone's uncle. Yeah. 
And he was looking after people and occasionally, you know, scolding people and laying down discipline. But it fit within the family dynamic that we get within the white base. Well, Ryu had been there from the beginning for this crew. They'd all come together as a family together. It's interesting how many parallels there are between Slager and Ryu. They're both pilots. They're both Federation officers rather than civilians pressed into service. And I believe they would be the same rank after Ryu's two-rank promotion. I think they're they're both lieutenants. We're clearly meant to compare them because the orphans mention. Yeah. He's a big, tall guy like Ryu. I wonder if he will be as nice as Ryu. I wonder if that feeling of Slager being out of place comes not just from his sort of new introduction, but the fact that he's in so many ways stepping into Ryu's role. But that Ryu-shaped space in everyone's life has actually closed since Ryu's death. The group has knitted itself back together into a different configuration, and there isn't really a spot for someone like Ryu there. And now Slager, who, while his personality is different, in many ways does interact with the group under the same terms that Ryu did, as you pointed out, is trying to force himself into a space that what is really like scar tissue. Like there's a wound there where Ryu was cut out and it's healed over, and now Slager is trying to force himself into it. I wouldn't say trying to force himself in because I think he seems supremely indifferent to the impression that he makes on <laughs> anyone beyond his fighting prowess. Everyone gets and, and on his, his and his flirting prowess. Everyone gets on his case in the combat that he starts firing too early. Mm-hmm. He's overeager and he's wasting ammo and he can't possibly hit anything at that range. So clearly he wants to show off. He yeah. wants to show up these kids. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, he doesn't seem to make any special effort with anyone. He tells Amaro he's being a pest when Amaro is <laughs> like, aren't you supposed to be on the guns? Well, that's because he's making a special effort with Sela right then. And Amaro is trying to get in the way. We get another great Mirai body language <laughs> moment when Slager leaves a hand on her shoulder and she pointedly removes said hand. Mm-hmm. Giving him the old brush off. She refuses to shake his hand also when yeah. they introduce themselves to each other. That handshake is a very unmilitary sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And he's treating her like a civilian, right? Yeah. He's ignoring the fact that she is now, even if he outranks her, she is now a soldier and an officer and a handshake is not an appropriate greeting. Right. Well, because we know from his perspective, it's just an excuse to touch her, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh. But I want to say it again. I really appreciate that the show doesn't try to make that seem like it's okay. Doesn't play it off for laughs. Like, Slager is a creep. However, what it makes me think about is whether or not there's any intentional commentary on the kinds of behavior women have to put up with in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Because while Sela and Mirai continually put him off, that doesn't seem to deter him at all. No. You know, and inviting Mirai to shower with him is pretty outrageous. Yeah. And no one else says anything. No one calls him out. No one calls him out. No one tells him he's being inappropriate. He does not get punished in any way. Mirai is like, oh, I think you uh, are going to be going by yourself. She just has to have a comeback ready, right? That's her best defense against him is like constant put downs. Mm -hmm. But you notice she and Sela never react. They are very careful never to react angrily, Mm -hmm. never to get upset. Mm -hmm. They react in a very cold and controlled way. Cool and calm. Obviously, I was not in the workplace in the 70s. I didn't have to experience that. But I have heard that that was the experience of a lot of women in a lot of workplaces, that the sexual harassment was basically constant and you had to be a good sport. Mm -hmm. Like even when you were rejecting people and trying to put them off, you had to do it in a way that showed that you were tough. You just had to be tough. 
And so while we know that the production team is almost entirely men, I don't know if we know of any women on it. I'm, there probably would have been women, at least in the support staff of the office, mm-hmm. um, possibly among the production, like business side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't off the top of my head think of any women who would have been in creative. However, if any of the writers had ever worked in an office that had women in it, they would have seen that dynamic. Well, and all of the voice actors for the women would have personal experience with it. Mm-hmm. One final reason I think Slager might have been introduced into the White Base crew. So much of the commentary of the show has to do with the interactions between young people and adults. Now that the White Base has left Jaburo, we have many fewer opportunities for those interactions with no adult on the crew. We don't have anyone who represents the establishment. <laughs> we don't have anyone who represents adults the enemy mm-hmm. unless they put someone on the crew. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We'll have to see. I'm very curious what they do with that going forward. Yeah. The other thing I want to say about Slager is I don't think we have enough information yet to really draw conclusions about this, but he reads very American. He's tall. He's blonde. It's very outgoing. Yeah. Kind of irreverent. His name is almost Slugger. It's kind of insubordinate. Yeah. Mm, well, and the, that's a bummer. The, the, the <laughs> like sexually aggressive. Probably. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bummer, but it's Too- probably true. Isn't very good at reading the air of the of the crew and fitting in. Doesn't seem to care about fitting in. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm. Early in Decoy in Space, there's a scene where the white base leaves Jaburo to start its new mission as a decoy in space. But before the chaos of battle and the stark void of space, the show gives us one last gorgeous glimpse of the living Earth as a flock of flamingos fly past the departing ship while the setting sun washes the rainforest in orange and gold. It's a beautiful scene, and quite famous. This is the 31st episode of a fairly unsuccessful giant robot toy commercial. The team either knows or is about to find out that they have been cancelled, and it would be perfectly natural for the already rough animation quality to decline precipitously at this point. But it hasn't. The real passion of the artists for their work, for this show, has kept them going, and sometimes it makes their work really sing. This scene is so famous, in fact, that its creation appeared in Gundam Soase, the manga retelling of First Gundam's <laughs> creation. The flamingos scene is traditionally attributed to one particular animator who is going to go on to be extremely famous in his own right, Itano Ichiro. I say traditionally attributed to him because he's not actually credited as a key animator for this episode. But there are a few names in the credits for episode 31 that look like pseudonyms, so we're just going to assume that the traditional mythology of Gundam is accurate here, and we're (laughs) going to give Itano credit for it. And like I said, Itano is going to go on to be famous in a few years for his work on Super Dimension Fortress Macross. And don't at me saying it's pronounced Macross, because we both know it's really Makurosu, and I can anglicize it however I want. (laughs) And most especially, he is going to be famous for his unique style of animating battles, called variously the Macross Missile Massacre or the Itano Circus, a high-speed, acrobatic, chaotic, three-dimensional approach to space combat that revolutionized anime action scenes forever. But what he should be famous for is being an absolute lunatic. (laughs) 
quick disclaimer on my part of this research, uh, I was looking at more Japanese sources. Uh, my own Japanese is very rusty. I relied heavily on a dictionary. <laughs> and uh, it's possible I've misunderstood some of the following anecdotes. But I did my best. If any of you are fluent speakers or Itano fans and have corrections, please let us know. Uh, and with that, Let's talk about Itano. So he was born in 1959, grew up in Yokohama, started to think of animation as a career towards the end of high school from watching Wakusei Robo Dangard Ace, <laughs> a Studio Musashi anime program, uh, and from childhood was really only interested in mechanical animation. His bio mentions the series Tetsujin 28 Go and Submarine 707 as inspirations. Uh, Mecha were his focus, and before you knew it, they were his specialty. He had been working as a freelancer through a studio called Cockpit uh, when he was invited by one of his senpai, another animator but more senior to him, to participate in Kido Senshi Gundamu and was very shortly promoted to key animator. Yeah, he started out as an in-betweens animator. And if you're not familiar, basically the key animators draw the really important frames <laughs> and then the in-between animators come in and they sort of rough out all the frames in between the key frames. You know, on these projects, uh, he learned a lot by working with veteran animators like Yasuhiko Yoshikazu, Yaz, who we've talked about previously, and Kogawa Tomonori, um, and started really polishing his unique staging for action scenes, which the English translation of what they call it in Japanese basically means missiles firing in every direction <laughs> <laughs> scenes, and battle scenes that involve a lot of very boisterous movement by a lot of different objects or actors. Did he get into animation after drama? out of high school. It sounded from one of the anecdotes about him as if his first animation job was one that he found uh, after being suspended <laughs> from <laughs> high school. Uh, and his parents were actually kind of relieved that he at least had a job. <laughs> right. He didn't follow the traditional path of going to art school, studying animation and film the way that a lot of the other Gundam creators that we've talked about did. Yeah. He, um, it sounds as if he and Yaz may have had something of a falling out. Yaz was really a mentor and a teacher to him. Uh, but Itano left Crusher Joe to work on Macross. And uh, at least according to this one source I read, they didn't speak <laughs> for 30 years uh, <laughs> until Itano started working with Yaz on Gundam The Origin. When Tom describes <laughs> Itano as a lunatic... This really covers a whole range of behavior, but most of it has to do with him being a complete daredevil. Yeah. So the most famous Itano anecdote actually is about the origin of his famous missile massacre or circus style of combat animation, because the story goes, and there are a couple of variations on this, so I'm just going to give the one that I think is the most commonly cited, but that as a teenager, he went down to the beach with his motorcycle and his friend, who also had a motorcycle. They both strapped 50 firework rockets on each of their motorcycles, and then they rode at each other on the beach and lit the fuses for the missiles so that they would all go off at the same time and fired swarms of missiles at each other. And he describes this experience of the missiles looping every different direction and the wind blowing the smoke across. And then some of the rockets are duds, but others go off twice as powerfully as you expect them to be. And some of them are just going at exactly the same speed you are and of being in this like cloud. of <laughs> Yeah, this three dimensional cloud of missiles and how it was having that experience that allowed him to be able to draw those incredible battle scenes. 
So I think of Itano as being kind of like like a gonzo animator. And there are a bunch of other stories about him where he wanted to be able to draw something. And so he did that something. <laughs> the other one that's very famous, he came to America with uh, Kawamori, who was the director of Macross. And they got into jet planes. They went to this like flight training facility in Arizona run by a bunch of ex-Air Force guys. And they got into jets and they went up and they were allowed to sort of mock dogfight with each other. But after winning a couple of these mock dogfights, Itano got bored and he was just like, I wonder what it's like like to black out. And so he just hauls the stick to one side and (laughs) starts blacking out as he hears this co-pilot, this old Air Force guy yelling, Itano, Itano-san, no. (laughs) And he describes like waking up, not knowing where he is, wondering why he's in the cockpit of a jet as an American is slapping his face. (laughs) And then they land and everyone from the Macross team goes off to get lunch. But the Bandai representative who's with them like stops Itano and pushes a pad of paper paper and a pencil into his hands and says, you are going to storyboard blacking out (laughs) because you could die at any moment. (laughs) We need this. And you are the only animator in Japan right now who knows what it's like to black out. Yeah. um, A lot of the anecdotes that I read about him make him sound like a daredevil. Uh, he had a you know beloved motorcycle, uh, which, in case you were wondering, was a black Honda VT250F <laughs> uh, decorated with a skull design. <laughs> I'm not clear if he put the design on his motorcycle first and then put it on one of the planes in Macross, or if it's the other way around, if it was in Macross first and then on his motorcycle. This is the Roy Fokker skull and bones design for Macross. Um, He would ride his motorcycle between trucks and buses and considered this like part of forging his dynamic vision. Like Tom said, you know, he has this vision in his head for a thing he wants to animate, but he doesn't feel like he can get it unless he lives it. So he just goes and and does it. He looks at it like training or like uh, a way to hone his mental discipline. He did tricks inspired by Mad Max, too. He's been run off the road several times by cars and buses. According to a light novel writer who knows him, he transitioned to a more supervisory role in his animation jobs because he got into a motorcycle accident and injured his wrist. He also became very ill working on Macross uh, due to the, frankly, punishing schedule uh, to the point where he was vomiting blood. They took him to the hospital. His doctor was saying, you need to be admitted immediately. Uh, and instead, Itano hops in a cab and goes to take part in an eight-hour endurance motorcycle race. <laughs> He got a complaint from a producer during Gundam that his battle animations were too fast. <laughs> the machines were too fast. Like Tom said, not a traditional path to becoming an animator. He, I found out in his early animation career, also worked as a newspaper delivery person. And so would get up extra early to do the newspaper deliveries, would go power nap at the office, work a full day as an animator, which I'm sure many of you have heard a lot of times that's a 14 to 16 to 18 hour day, depending on where you are in the process, and then go deliver papers again Mm -hmm. um, and kept this up for quite some time. There's a story that even though he was extremely successful as an animator on Gundam, after Gundam ended, he blew all his money and was working as a truck driver. Until one of his former colleagues tracked him down and said, Itano, we need you. (laughs) As we were researching this, at one point, Nina looks over at me and she says, this guy must have been a genius because otherwise no one would put up with him. The daredevil behavior, for one thing, because just from a a business perspective, is that a risk you want to take on that one of your most important animators or or producers or, you know, whatever role he's holding 
is maybe going to die in the middle of your production. <laughs> yeah. Because they take a lot of risks. Also, not for nothing, I don't know if this is true in Japanese animation, but a lot of American studios actually take out like insurance on the major players in a production for that very reason. Like just in case something happens and it messes with your schedule or makes it so you can no longer finish the project, you have some kind of uh, financing to fall back on. Yeah. I mean, losing an animator is one thing, but imagine if you lost a director in the middle of the project. Yeah. Um, Fun fact, in a few years, we are going to be talking about a Gundam series that lost its director in the middle of the project. Oh, uh, but even beyond that, the page I read also uh, described him as feeling that animators are their own sort of special breed, <laughs> right? <laughs> Which, given what animators put up with to do the job that they do, he may be right. Uh, but beyond his risky behavior, there's also clearly, you know, his vision is more important to him than doing what the studio wants him to do. He also famously punched the president of a finishing company at a rap party for a series. Uh, <laughs> Bury the lead, why don't you? Yeah, uh, he has a he has a unique vision that the sponsors don't like. Oh, and he punched a coworker. Well, not just a coworker, a boss kind of. Yeah. Uh, because he felt that it was their company's fault that a number of people had had to resign during the middle of a project. It's not clear from the anecdote whether it's because the the schedule was just too much and people couldn't do it or they kept tightening the budget and so they had to let people go. Uh, But something about this other company had caused difficulties for the staff on the project and Itano lost his temper. He's a legend. <laughs> well, and it, and it, when you search him online, the very first picture, he's got a ponytail and a goatee. And he's like wearing a khaki vest. He looks like an iconoclast yeah, yeah. <laughs> for Japan. So he's a good match for Tomino in a lot of ways. I don't know how true this is, especially in this particular situation, but one of the persistent stories about Tomino and what makes him such a nightmare of a director is that he has a habit of asking his animators to produce scenes that he knows or believes are impossible. <laughs> Given the constraints of the budget and the time and the people and all of those things. And that this Flamingos scene may have been one of those times when he goes to his team of animators and he says, I want this. I want hundreds of individually drawn Flamingos to fly past the white base with the expectation that no one would be able to do it. And Itano is the guy who stands up and says, I'll do it. Well, you had a story about his first animation job. Yeah, I don't know if this is entirely true. Again, <laughs> this is the mythology of Gundam we're talking about here. But one of the stories about Itano getting started in animating is that he went in for his first job and he didn't actually know how to do anything. <laughs> and they gave him a test, you know, draw these frames. And he tries and he isn't able to get it. But then he says, well, can I stay and keep working on it? And they said, sure. They left him in the conference room or wherever he was. And he kept working on it. And he worked all night. And by the morning, he had done what they had asked of him. And they were so impressed by his... <laughs> stick to Yeah, <laughs> that they gave him the job. Wow. To close up on Itano, I would just like to say, I had never heard this man's name before. I don't watch a ton of... Before this project, I had never watched a ton of anime that involved mech battles. But the moment Tom began describing the Itano Circus to me, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I can picture the scenes in my head. It is so iconic and so unique and aesthetic. 
And I think it's just mind blowing that one person <laughs> created that. Whenever one person can create something like that in art, mm -hmm. I think it's really amazing. Well, and it caught on almost immediately. Like other shows were adopting it even before Macross had finished its run and they were calling it the Itano Circus. <laughs> There is, if you've watched The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya in the second season during the Endless Eight arc, there is a homage to Itano where Kion, one of the main characters, is riding his bicycle and straps a bunch of fireworks to it and sets them all off around him. It's really cool. The Zacrello has a well-deserved reputation as one of the goofiest looking of all the mobile armors introduced in First Gundam. Really, it's one of the goofiest designs in Gundam, period. It's described in the show as a prototype from a cancelled project and is destroyed within minutes of its introduction. A person could reasonably conclude that it was introduced merely because of an obligation to introduce some new machine in an episode that otherwise relied heavily on the by now familiar Doms and Musai. After all, every single one of the last six episodes has featured a new Xeon machine, so the Zacrello with its mouth and teeth and teardrop-shaped eyes and scythe arms, all mounted on a pair of thrusters, is about the last Gundam mech that you'd believe was inspired by, of all things, real-world tanks. But you know what? I think it was. Sandwiched in between World War II and the Vietnam War, the Korean War of 1950-1953 gets relatively little attention in America, sometimes being called the Forgotten War, but it is fascinating nonetheless, and it had absolutely enormous effects on the world that continue today. Now I say 1950 to 1953 because that covers the shooting war and the period of United Nations and American intervention, but the war between North and South Korea is ongoing today. Like I said, enormous effects that continue. Part of what's so fascinating about the Korean War is how, even just a couple of years after World War II, the United States was utterly unprepared to fight it and did not expect it at all. After World War II concluded, the administration of new U.S. President Harry Truman clearly wanted a return to the status quo of the 1930s, where the U.S. had a relatively small standing military and mostly concerned itself with its own backyard. The massive war machine constructed to win World War II was largely dismantled. The army was downsized. Specialized branches like psychological warfare were shut down almost entirely. Public statements were made to the effect that the U.S. did not intend to get involved in other countries' disputes. But at the same time, the international situation at the end of World War II imposed all kinds of international responsibilities on the United States that were, let's just say, not very compatible with the ideal of a less interventionist America. In particular, Korea, only just liberated from Japanese imperial rule, had been divided between U.S. occupation in the South and Soviet occupation in the North. But by 1949, the U.S. troops had left, and the communists had triumphed in neighboring China's civil war. So in June 1950, sensing that the United States was not sufficiently committed to its role as protector of South Korea, North Korea, supported by hundreds of thousands of Chinese communist soldiers, tens of thousands of battle-hardened Korean veterans returning from the Chinese civil war, and the Soviets, launched a swift and brutal invasion of South Korea. In two days, Seoul was captured. In five days, the South Korean army was reduced to a quarter of its original strength. And the U.S. was caught completely by surprise. Even so, within a week, the first U.S. troops began landing in South Korea to join the increasingly chaotic defense. These U.S. troops deployed directly from Japan, but they did so without adequate equipment and suffered heavy losses in a series of defeats as they and the dwindling South Korean army retreated further south. Back in Japan, and on the U.S. mainland, that dismantled war machine was coming back together, and masses of military materiel were being prepared for the unexpected war. 
And while all of that was happening, another missing section of the armed forces was hastily being reconstructed. Remember that I mentioned that the World War II era psychological warfare apparatus had been shuttered? Psychological warfare had been made up of radio broadcasters, translators, newspaper writers, and psychologists, civilians who had gone back to their civilian jobs when the war was over. And the very idea of psychological warfare just seemed a little questionable to the post-war Congress. The Psychological Warfare Units, and I'm just going to call them Psywar from now on because the full name is a lot of syllables. Anyway, the Psywar units that had proved so useful in World War II simply didn't exist when the Korean War started. In 1950, the army had one Psywar unit. It was 20 guys in Kansas, and they mostly existed to simulate anti-American Psywar for training purposes. The U.S.'s Far East Command, under General Douglas MacArthur, had a small, civilian-run, six-person Psywar group based in Tokyo. And when the Korean War broke out, this group was responsible for the first Psywar operations. From the start of the war onward, both the Far East Command Psywar group and the Army's official Psywar branch did grow rapidly. But for the most part, especially early on, we're talking about a small handful of guys with no real experience trying to figure out how to do Psywar against Korean and Chinese troops. For all intents and purposes, they were throwing everything at the wall just to see what stuck. Now, I tell you all of that background because what I'm about to discuss, the thing that inspired the Zacrello, was a harebrained scheme from some unnamed lieutenant working in Cywar. <laughs> See, some Cywar soldier looked at a calendar and realized that 1950 was, according to the Chinese Zodiac, the year of the metal tiger. So, after going up and down the command chain a bit, an order was issued that United Nations tankers operating in Korea were authorized to paint their tanks to look like big metal tigers, in the hope that that would unsettle the presumed-to-be-superstitious conscript peasants of the Chinese and North Korean armies. Because of the way tanks are shaped, a lot of those tiger-painted tanks ended up with big gaping mouths studded with spiky teeth, claws on the sides, and teardrop-shaped eyes, just like the Zacrello. Did any of this work? Well, by the time the project was authorized and the tanks were painted and the time had come to actually use them in battle, it was already March 1951, the year of the metal rabbit. <laughs> so the timeliness of the metal tiger motif was a little bit wasted. They still look pretty intimidating, but like so do tanks. Regular <laughs> tanks are intimidating. But I will say this for those tiger tanks. They looked pretty sweet. And if anything, I imagine that they improved morale for the tankers themselves. And that's not nothing. Plus, they inspired the Zacrello. Two final notes before we leave the Korean War. The conventional wisdom is that, under the U.S.-imposed peace constitution, the Japanese people have not been directly involved in a war since the end of World War II. But in fact, at least hundreds and probably thousands of Japanese fought in some capacity or another during the Korean War. Japanese sailors operated troop transports ferrying troops to Korea and worked on minesweepers operating off the Korean coast. Many more Japanese accompanied the U.S. forces deployed from Japan to Korea. These were people working as cooks or mechanics, laundrymen, interpreters, drivers, and so on. But due to the desperate nature nature of the war, even though they had non-combat sorts of jobs, a lot of them still found themselves in fatigues, carrying weapons, firing in combat, and killing enemy soldiers. And for a lot of reasons, their involvement has been hushed up. We do know, however, that at least 79 Japanese were killed during the war. And finally, those tiger-faced tanks actually had a predecessor in World War II. Back then, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists were nominally in charge of China, and they were allied with the United States in the war against the Japanese invaders. In order to bolster the Chinese Army's tank forces, the Allies created a joint tank unit called the Chinese-American First Provisional Tank Group, composed of six Chinese tank battalions supported by small groups of American tankers, advisors, and some logistics support. They were equipped with U.S.-made tanks, new Stuart light tanks at first, and then, from 1944 
on a small number of Sherman medium tanks. The Chinese tank crews in the 1st Provisional Tank Group proceeded to decorate their new tanks with calligraphy, religious icons, and painted tiger faces. Possibly for luck, but probably because tigers are awesome. The 1st Provisional Tank Group fought throughout the war, and after Japan's surrender, the US advisors turned all of their equipment over to the Chinese tankers with whom they had served for two years, and then they went home. But this is a Gundam podcast, so we don't get to end the story there. The Chinese soldiers from the 1st Provisional Tank Group were reformed into an armored unit of the Chinese Nationalist Army, and they, along with all those tiger-painted tanks, deployed to fight in the Chinese Civil War. Four years later, that unit was utterly wiped out near Beijing in one of the last battles of the Civil War. Although he was unable to record with us today, we have our special guest scientist Iraj to thank uh, for this week's explanation of why G-Force makes people faint and how realistic the scene with the Gundam and the Big Row is. If you're a new listener to the podcast, Iraj is a physicist who has helped us out a couple of times in the past to understand the real science going on under the surface in Gundam. Iraj previously appeared in episode 1.5, Reentry to Earth, when he helped us to understand how reentry to Earth would work. And then again in episode 1.18, when he helped us to understand how the Adzam leader, a weird sci-fi weapon, might actually work. He begins with a few basic physics definitions, which I appreciate because I do not remember my high school <laughs> physics at all. First, velocity is the rate of change of position. You can think of it as uh, the average displacement per second or the slope of any position versus time graph. It's what's shown in your car's speedometer. It's a measure of meters per second or more generally distance over time units. Acceleration is the rate of change of velocity. So it would be the slope of a velocity versus time graph and is measured in meters per second per second, <laughs> or more generally distance over time squared. Newton's law tells us that if no force is acting on an object, then it travels at a constant velocity, constant speed, and a straight line. We call this inertia. Therefore, in space, we can generally assume that objects that don't have thrusters or anything like that will keep moving at a constant velocity. One obvious question is, nothing in space actually feels no force, there's always gravity, and we know that objects orbit the nearest massive objects. Uh, here, one basic concept from Einstein's general relativity comes in handy. The equivalence principle essentially says that gravitational force acts like a special type of force, which gives every object the same acceleration, irrespective of mass. This is very nifty because it means that if I am in a spaceship which is orbiting Earth, as long as the spaceship is only being acted upon by gravity, then I accelerate at the same rate it does, and so it feels like I'm floating. Okay. In summary, there's no way to know from inside a ship what gravitational force it's experiencing, because whether the ship and I are orbiting Earth, the sun, falling down to Earth, or in empty space, it will feel like I'm floating, and I won't notice any acceleration of the ship relative to me. Okay. In this situation, we have Amuro in his Gundam, and the Gundam is grabbed by the big row. He undergoes enough acceleration that it makes him pass out. We want to know whether this is possible and what it entails as far as the ships in question. Accelerations are convenient to measure as a multiple of Earth's surface acceleration, which is what we call Gs. Earth's surface acceleration, or 1G, is 9.8 meters per second squared. So when we say he experiences two Gs, we're talking about twice that acceleration. And when we say Earth's surface acceleration, we mean the acceleration that Earth imparts on someone through its gravitational force 
if that someone or something is on the surface of the Earth. Right. At most, a human can, with special training, a special suit, and still at risk of death, experience nine Gs for a very short period of time. More realistically, we will assume a maximum acceleration of five Gs. (laughs) The reason why humans can't handle much more acceleration than that is fairly intuitive. The equivalence principle applies the other way around, too. If I experience two Gs, that is physically indistinguishable from if I was on a planet with double Earth's gravity. So my weight doubles. The insides of my body are pulled in the opposite direction of the acceleration. Like centrifugal force, when you sharply turn a car, they act in the opposite direction of the acceleration since everything in my body is trying to keep going in a straight line. For example, a fighter pilot suddenly points the nose of their plane down, and they experience what's called red out, a situation where their vision goes red for a moment because of all the blood rushing to their face. They're moving downwards. Their blood is trying to keep going in a straight line. (laughs) This forces all of the blood up into their head. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they don't stop accelerating soon, they will faint. A similar thing happens if they try to point the nose of the plane up to recover from a dive. Except this time, all the blood goes to your feet, and blood pressure in the face drops suddenly, causing what's called a gray out. People can die from both of these if normal blood flow is not restored shortly after. Iraj did some quick calculations to see if the scene in the show makes sense. The assumptions are as follows. The suit begins at rest. It is not moving. At rest, at least relative to the big row. Yes. Uh, The ship which grabs it moves at some constant speed, V, relative to the Gundam. It takes the Big Row a certain time, T, to get the suit to move as fast as it is moving. It's useful to ask, why can't we assume that the snagging is instantaneous, that T equals zero? If that were the case, the acceleration would be infinite, (laughs) and Amuro would be killed instantly. (laughs) Because you would have the velocity over a time of zero, Sure, most of you remember what you can't divide by zero. Yeah. Um, yeah, Giving ourselves a finite T is saying that the ship grabs the mecha with some leeway and it's not perfectly rigid. This makes sense when we think about the arms and the way that the arms articulate and move. Uh, We need one more assumption to get a good handle on the system. For this, we can assume that the tool with which the ship grabs the mech is a little bendy. And so the leeway it gives to the mech can be translated into a length. The mecha accelerates to catch up to the ship over this distance, from the point of grabbing to the full extension of the arm. Mm -hmm. We will assume this length to be about 10 meters, which is comparable to the length of the Gundam. Mm -hmm. Then we know that velocity times time is 10 meters, since distance is velocity times time. This allows us to then calculate the acceleration. I'll post Iraj's calculations online. I find... Verbal explanations of calculations, totally unhelpful. So uh, I'll be sure to get all of that into the show notes. But the final assumption that you make is that at some point, an acceleration is achieved that makes Amuro pass out. So we assume an acceleration of 5Gs. This lets us calculate everything else. We wind up with a speed of about 50 miles an hour. That doesn't necessarily sound very fast. But Iraj is quick to point out, when we make an estimate like this, interpretation is key. Even if you make the assumptions much laxer, you couldn't get a speed much faster than 50 miles an hour because velocity is proportional to the square root of the acceleration. So the ships can't go very fast relative to one another or grabbing the Gundam would kill the driver very quickly. As a sanity check, 50 miles an hour makes sense. Uh, You can think of this like getting hit by a car. 
given 10 meters of leeway. Even with that leeway, it would be tough to survive a collision with a car going 50 miles an hour. Uh, but that's essentially what, in a sort of loose way, Amro is doing. Right. He's getting hit with a 50 mile an hour <laughs> object and mm-hmm. surviving. Mm-hmm. And as far as ships go, this would have to be a pretty slow pass by for it to work. But that's not inconsistent with what we see in the show. The ships would have to go slowly relative to one another to even be able to hit each other. Right. Finally, Iraj points out, if you take any physics lesson away from this, it should be that the only speed that matters is relative speed. Uh, This is a beautiful fact of physics. It doesn't matter where they are in the universe. There could be a supermassive black hole nearby. The local interaction between the Gundam and the Big Row only cares about their relative velocities and accelerations, not about anything absolute set by their environment. That's pretty cool. I have an update for our most loyal listeners. If you recall, some episodes back, we were discussing Ramba Rawl and the promise of a two-rank promotion if he was able to destroy the white base. At the time, we talked about two-rank promotions in the real world and how, while they were rumored in many cases, we weren't able to track down any examples from World War II of anyone receiving a two-rank promotion as a reward for accomplishing a particularly difficult or daring mission. But one of our patrons in our Discord server was able to think of an example. So thank you to Daryl Archideld, who remembered that the famous Doolittle Raid, which was an early bombing raid of the Japanese home islands as retaliation for the Pearl Harbor attacks, earned the commanding officer of the raid, Lieutenant Colonel Doolittle, an immediate two-rank promotion to Brigadier General. Cool. Yeah. So thank you, Daryl. Not his real name. He insisted that we call him Daryl Archideld. Next time on episode 1.27, Patrimony. A friendly warning punch. Reunions. Poor little rich boy. Some kind of monster. Are we breaking up? Sleggerlaw, defender of women? Literal red tape. Char comes to laugh at you. Talking about Frabo and fighting the Brabro. Daddy issues. My precious floating dock! And somebody's future. Will you be able to survive? Make sure you do all of the podcast things. Subscribe, share, review, and pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown for free on fine podcast services everywhere and on YouTube. Join us on Patreon for great bonus content, access to the MSB Discord, and to support the podcast. Just go to GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can follow us on Twitter at Gundam Podcast, on Instagram at Gundam Podcast, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast. And you can check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all our episodes, show notes, and more. Plus, you can email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or shout your wrong Gundam opinion to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, Gundam NT is a standalone movie and an excellent introduction to the franchise for a new fan on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening.
the Wikipedia felt the need to mention he grew up next door to a famous haiku poet. <laughs> I mean, I could leave it. I think that's the approach most podcasters would take in I, this situation. I think it is the most reasonable approach. You know it drives me mad, knowing that there's a mistake, <laughs> knowing that I could fix it, and then not fixing it. But then doesn't that create a mistake in this episode, because it's all weird that we're apologizing for something that does not appear to have happened? Listen, you. <laughs> You've trapped me in some sort of bind. <clears throat> anyway. You don't have time for non-Gundam-related <laughs> research. Oh, it's true. It's true, and it hurts. Most of my childhood, I thought it was pronounced Lichen, which it definitely isn't. So I'm going to own this one. Are you sure you're not trying to do the dolphin sound? <laughs> they are truly the <laughs> of the sea.